characterize it today is I don't really like the term networking. Networking to me sounds like you're reaching out and you're grabbing and you're, you're trying to build a web to your advantage. I really yeah. think about it as leading a relationship-driven life. And what do I mean by that? I, I mean, you know, ultimately this isn't just good for your business, it's good for yourself as a person. If you read books, uh -huh. for example, on happiness, like a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, one of my favorites, uh -huh. it boils down to uh, happiness in life is meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Hello and welcome to another episode of Startup Garage. This is Webhav and I'm delighted to have Heidi Rosen on the show today with me. Heidi is a venture capitalist, a corporate director, a Stanford lecturer and at heart always an entrepreneur. She co-founded the software company TeamMaker and served as its CEO for over a decade until its acquisition by Deluxe Corporation. After a stint as the VP of Worldwide Developer Relations at Apple, she entered the VC industry with SoftBank and currently is a partner at the Silicon Valley-based Threshold Ventures. She's a corporate director for a bunch of public and private companies, such as Memphis Meets, Lumity, and Polar. And most importantly, she's known for her strong and warm professional relationships. So Heidi, firstly, it is incredible to have you over at Startup Garage. I'm glad we could do this today. Uh, so Hi. thanks for joining in. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, how have you been? Good, good. Busy times. Uh, lots going on in the entrepreneurial world and right. in the world. <laughs> Crazy times. Absolutely. So, uh, Heidi, before we dive into questions about professional relations and networking for entrepreneurs, I would love to talk more about your early days as an entrepreneur and how it all sure. came together for you, since I feel it would be a really good way to sort of know where your learnings come from. So you started off your career in creative writing and started yep. your venture right off from Stanford, if I'm not wrong. Right. I was very fortunate to be at Stanford and Silicon Valley. I sort of consider I was in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. I came from a very entrepreneurial family. My dad was an entrepreneur, not always a successful one, mm -hmm. uh, frankly, but, uh, but he it was always the belief of the belief that if you, the best jobs were ones you created for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I actually... Um, little trivial fact is I started my first venture at 12 years old. I did puppet oh. shows for children's birthday parties. And I actually did that for about seven years and I uh, got to the point where I was doing seven, eight shows every weekend. And, and, uh, and, and actually it was quite successful. And, and basically when I had kids, I never wanted to go to another birthday party for the rest <laughs> of my life. But, uh, but so entrepreneurship was something that was, um, you know, when you think back to the time we're talking about, which is really the early 80s, yes, there was entrepreneurial activity here in Silicon Valley, but it wasn't as democratized as it is now. But I was very fortunate that I was in the right place at the right time. I was not a technical person, but my brother is a computer science uh, programmer and he's the one who wrote the original code. And I was very much passionate about personal computing from the perspective of a user, not a technologist. Uh -huh. And that's really how we got uh, the company started. It was called TeamMaker. And, uh -huh. and um, I was the CEO there for over a decade. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, you stayed there for uh, over a decade and then uh, it got acquired. And then you yes. All yeah, I got acquired by Deluxe Corporation. Um, so I had over a decade there. We grew it to about 100 people and about 15 million in revenue. It was a good outcome in the day, small by today's standards, but a good, good company in the day. Right. And then I ended up leaving that. I got recruited by Apple to be Worldwide Developer Relations VP. Uh 
Mm -hmm. And um, that was um, that was a really interesting, a little bit more than a year of my life. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, corporate. The corporate world was not for me. It was very tumultuous times for Apple. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, and um, I ended up leaving that, and shortly thereafter uh, joined a venture capital firm. So yeah, entered right. venture um, over twenty years ago now. Right, right, right. And after the acquisition, like you said, you went on to Apple, which at that time was fledgling. Uh, so, what was how was your experience there? Because I believe that was around the dot com <laughs> well, bubble, Apple right? Wasn't, I mean, at the time I went to Apple, it was a twelve billion dollar a year company in revenue. I wouldn't call yeah. it fledgling; I would call it flailing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a company that uh, it lost seven hundred million dollars the quarter I joined. I don't think it was my fault, but. Uh, you know, it was a it was in a very difficult and dark time in Apple's history. The company yeah. actually almost almost went bankrupt, um, mm -hmm. and so uh, it crawled from that abyss thanks to mm -hmm. the magic that Steve Jobs brought back to it, and mm -hmm. I think the evolution to uh, cloud based uh, mm -hmm. the cloud based world of computing and connectivity, mm -hmm. where um, as we used to joke on the internet, no one knows you're a Mac. So, uh, and I'm speaking to you from a Mac right now. So uh, look, I think it's one of the greatest uh, recovery and success stories ever to go from that to being on any given day, the most valuable company in the world. It was a, an amazing experience, but from a personal perspective, even though I'm a dyed in the wool Apple and Mac fan, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it wasn't a place for me personally. I, I really am more aligned with the early stage and the entrepreneurial journey. And so that's why I left Apple and I went back to uh, a, another way to do entrepreneurship, which is the venture capital route. Right, right, right. And that's why I think you call yourself a recovering entrepreneur. Right. Yes. And you, you mentioned you mentioned that a couple of a couple of times and uh, you, you shifted from Apple to venture capital. And yeah. I think you started off with SoftBank initially. Uh, so right, what, yes. what okay. really was that shifting moment? What was the pivotal moment over there? Well, I think, I mean, I think going from being an operating person to being a venture capitalist is really uh, kind of like going from being a parent to a grandparent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, where, when you're the venture, when you're the entrepreneur, you're on the, you're on the front lines and, um, you know, you're the quarterback and you're making the decisions and the highs are high and the lows are low. Yeah. And when you become a venture capitalist, you're more in the background, you're supporting the entrepreneur. You're not the star of the show. Mm -hmm. You're working through their teams and you're working mm -hmm. with capital to try to make things happen. But it's a very different style um, of work. And I think I just mm -hmm. got to the point in my life where I had mm -hmm. done the, you know, been on the front line for 20 years and it was time for me to take more of a back seat. Yeah. Yeah. And in between all of that, I was, I was reading up about you a lot uh, in the past few days. And I found out that in between all of these roles that you took up, uh, there was skinny songs. So tell us something more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I just I think it was a, a, a little bit of that, as I call myself a recovering entrepreneur, because mm -hmm. because I think I'm always trying to come up with entrepreneurial things to do. Yeah. And I had this idea about of all things, music to motivate weight loss. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I did that. I collaborated. I am not a singer. I'm not a musician. Uh, I did the lyrics and I co collaborated with some great people out of Nashville and other places to put an mm -hmm. album together. And it was a lot of fun, but, mm -hmm. it's, but it's, it was not my day job. So mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I did that for about a year. And then I said, eh, I kind of need to be more serious about yeah. About uh, about Silicon Valley and technology entrepreneurship, yeah. and so that's 
um, shortly after that, I ended up joining DFJ, which mm -hmm. then uh, the venture team spun out and became Threshold mm -hmm. Ventures. So I've been with right. that same organization now for mm -hmm. cl close to 10 years. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I mean, that really comes to show how how enterprising you were. I mean, uh, even after you had worked for over a couple of decades, I believe, you still tried out something totally new. And Yeah, um, I mean, I'm always scared. Like, don't rule it out. I may still start another company. I, I don't know. <laughs> I tell myself not to. But, uh, but I think that once you, once you have that, um, yeah. once you've had that success of you come up yeah. with an idea yeah. and then you actually bring something to life from nothing, uh, it's, it's a very... Um, there's no feeling like it. Yeah. And it is, it's a very addictive thing to do. So uh, it's like you're now I try blood. to get my yeah, I try to get my satisfaction more out of serving the entrepreneurs that I work with. And, mm -hmm. and they're really fantastic. And I, I think they all work harder than I would ever <laughs> than I would work anymore too. So I give it to them. I give them all the credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. That's that's a brilliant, I think, uh, trait to have. Uh, to, to sort of just put yourself in an uncomfortable position and, and make something that people absolutely love. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there's no feeling greater than making something out of scratch that a lot of people love using. I think there's, yes, I think absolutely. there's no greater feeling than that. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my most joyful times as an entrepreneur was getting letters from, from users. Uh -huh who would and even manning the tech support lines even being able to solve people's problems um was really exciting or walking down the street in hong kong and seeing my software in the window of a store back when software was sold in windows wow. at stores um super exciting mm -hmm. absolutely sorry um jumping into something that was the core of this episode so you you're probably one of the most well-networked people in the tech industry you have been known for your connection your relationships rather uh, your Stanford case study. So actually, I read your Stanford case study uh, at the Indian School of Business, and that. So All right. I, yeah. So I was at the Indian School of Business last year, and that oh, is great. I, yeah, that is how I got to know about you. Technically, it is a Harvard case. I went to Stanford, <laughs> but it is a Harvard case. So okay. We'll okay. give them credit. <laughs> yes. So um, in the Howard case, you actually talk in depth about certain principles that you developed. So how did that come about? How did you develop these principles? And are these still on today? I mean, have you witnessed any alterations in your findings? Have you sort of altered your principles of networking, of building relationships? So I think what's interesting is um, the brief history of the case is actually it was written by a Harvard professor who was very interested in having a female protagonist for a discussion about building a business network. And she read about me and approached me. And when she first approached me about it, I said, well, isn't this kind of common sense? And she said, no, you'd be surprised. It's common sense is not that common. So ultimately, she interviewed me and distilled my thinking down into more of a prescriptive template. And, uh, and, and so it was an interesting process where I actually think she formalized it more than I had ever thought about it. But what's interesting now is that case is over 20 years old. And I think like many things in your life, if you look back to something you said 20 years ago, it might make you wince. But, uh, but I actually believe in all of the elements of the case that still ring true for me. And I'm very proud of that case. And ultimately what I would say is how I characterize it today is I don't really like the term networking. Networking to me sounds like you're reaching out and you're grabbing mm -hmm. and you're, mm -hmm. you're trying to build a web to your advantage. I really yeah. think about it as leading a relationship-driven life. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? I, I mean, you know, ultimately, this isn't just good for your business. It's good for yourself as a person. If you read books, mm -hmm. for example, on happiness, like a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, one of my favorites, 
-huh. it boils down to uh, happiness in life is meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And I believe that one of the interesting things about technology companies often is we find our most meaningful relationships through our meaningful work together. And so for me, this idea of leading a relationship-driven life and the components of that, what it means to make yourself easy to find, make yourself easy to help, be willing to be helpful, looking for the maximum intersection of mutual need. A lot of these attributes or prescriptive measures that I talk about in the case and subsequent to the case when I've been interviewed about it are, I believe, good prescriptions for life, not just for business. But ultimately it does boil down to recognizing that your, that life is not about a series of transactions, it's about relationships. And any individual transaction is secondary to the relationship. Right, right, right. So that's, that's, that's really helpful. And I think that way of looking at relationships is really important. I mean, you can't just have a network and expect them to be for you when you want. Um, it, it should be more like a relationship. So how can, so you always talk about effective networking, which is achieved by building, say, long-lasting relationships, right? Even in the case you've talked about that. So right. my, I, I have two questions on that. So first is, how do you identify what kind of relationships you want to be in or you want to build? And mm -hmm. second is, how do you make sure that you keep nurturing all of them? I mean, you just have to wait for right. that in, in your day, right? So. <laughs> well, luckily, I'll answer the second part first. Uh -huh. The nurturing part, uh, you know, there's been there have been a lot of studies that have said, some of the most valuable networks are large, weak relationships. And so I don't think this means you have to be everybody's best friend. Uh -huh. I do think that you have to understand what your own attributes are. Um, sometimes people call it a personal brand and I don't love the idea of personal brand. I mean, I, you know, it's not about what color you wear or, you know, I'm yeah, the guy with the cowboy yeah. hats, but it is about, I think in a way, brand attributes, right? If I say a brand, like I say, Starbucks, you know right away if you walk in a Starbucks, what's it going to be like? What kind of music is going to be playing? What's going to be on the menu? What are the baristas even going to look and act like? And that either attracts you or doesn't, but you have a, a promise of consistency. And for me, I think it starts with deciding who you want to be. Are, what are your ethical boundaries? What is your work style? What are the sectors that get you excited? What kind of communication style do you have? understanding a little bit how about who you are and how to be consistent and then what level of giving do you want to do what level of support do you want to provide what do you expect from other people when do you draw the line with people when they're constantly asking you for everything and they're not and they're not holding up any value for you yeah i think that these are things that that people everybody understands this stuff subconsciously but i would encourage people to have a more conscience conscious thought about this and decide this. Mm -hmm. And for me, for example, I like good, strong, ethical people. I like blunt and direct people. Mm -hmm. I like polite and kind people. Mm -hmm. And I, a lot of my network, building it and culling it comes down to how I believe are other people ethical? Are they polite and kind? Mm -hmm. Are they contributing to society in ways I think are appropriate? Are they contributing to my network? And is there something I have I can offer them in return? And so again, I don't, I don't keep a spreadsheet. I don't keep a database. People often ask me, you know, what tools do you use? Honestly, <laughs> LinkedIn, you know, and my email are basically my tools for keeping in touch with my network. But the vast majority is LinkedIn and, and email. Right. But to me, those are sort of the overarching principles. 
that um, that have allowed me to build and maintain what now amounts to a very large network. But a lot of those people, I may not be in touch with someone. You know, I just had a thing recently where an entrepreneur was doing something interesting. I hadn't talked to him for five years. Mm-hmm. And I just emailed him and said, hey, I just read about what you're doing. It's really interesting. And he said, oh, that's funny. I was just going to reach out to you. I just read your blog post wow. a few days ago and it resonated with me. So mm-hmm. I do think that, um, that, again, this goes back to consistency. I think if people follow my blog, for example, I don't write that often. But when I do, I think my blog posts are all highly consistent. The, the yep. voice is very similar. My, my main attributes are very similar. The things I stand for, I, I don't flip-flop. I'm not mercurial. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people know what they're getting when they interact right. with me. I think that's important. Right. right, right, right. And I think I think that also answers my first question, which was sort of like, uh, how do you identify what kind of relationships you want to be in? So is it to go out there and identify what kind of um, consistency you're getting from what kind of people? Uh, is it is it based on your experiences of trial and error? So you go out to go out there and be there for people and then you sort of pick and select or is yeah, it more I, like- I mean, <laughs> I mean, remember, I am in a very relationship driven business, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. We need to be very proactive about meeting with entrepreneurs and we take a exactly. hundred meetings for every one deal we do. So wow. my current job requires that I be very active in networks and then I'd be very willing to entertain incoming things. Now that said, I mean, our fund is, we're a series A fund, we're largely US, you know, invest in the US. So, mm-hmm. so there are boundaries where even if I like the deal, I can't necessarily be helpful because it's outside the boundaries of our fund. But within that, I have the good fortune, I get a lot of incoming between the case, which is still taught in you know, all the major business schools in the world. It's quite remarkable to me. It's a 20 year old case and it's still quite popular. Yep. I get a lot of incoming from that. I get a lot of incoming from my blog and the speaking I do and things like that. And then the fact that I'm a venture capitalist and a lot of entrepreneurs are looking for, mo- for money from people like me. Mm-hmm. So I do, I, I get the bulk of my new relationships are as a result of people seeking me out. But I also seek other people out. For example, recently I've been focused on the idea that there need to be more first timers, both women and people of color on mm-hmm. corporate boards. And so I have been asking my network to introduce me to board ready people who have not served on a board yet so that I can help them get into the right network so they can be selected. Mm-hmm. And so I've probably met, I don't know, 20, 30 new people in the last three or four months, even in the era of COVID. Mm-hmm. by using my network to reach out and say, these are the kind of people I'm looking for. Can you introduce me to some new people? So it, you know, it is both inbound and outbound, but I would say at this point in my life, I think given both my profession and my age, it's more inbound than outbound. Right, right, right. Just one quick question out of curiosity. Um, who, is, who is the one person that you know is really good at building these relationships? I mean, you have, you've had the fortune of, um, uh, being involved with a lot of people back in the 90s and early 2000s um, uh, with, with early tech entrepreneurs. So yeah. who, who is that one well, person? There are a lot. Person? There are a lot of really good ones, but I'm going to mm-hmm. name, I'm, I'm going to name two. You asked for one, mm-hmm. I'm going to name two. One mm-hmm. of them is a woman named Betsy Atkins. 
and she is a board member extraordinaire. She's one of the top women who serve on public boards. Okay. And she's written a book about board service. And she's just incredible. Wow. Anytime I talk to Betsy, I could just mention like, I wish I knew so-and-so. And the next minute I'm going to have an email in my inbox. <laughs> well, and then the other one is the author and professor Adam Grant. Um, I spoke in his uh, class uh, at Wharton uh, about two months ago. I don't know. And the oh, next wow. day he sends me an email and he says, who, do you, who would you most like to meet? And I said, I don't know, let me think about it. And he said, well, here's six ideas. And he sent me six people he knows that he said, I just think you should meet these people. And I said, well, I'll pick two. Yeah. And I met two and they were both amazing. And so, um, you know, but Adam is, I mean, he's probably, mm -hmm. he's famous for this, right? I mean, yeah. he wrote the book, Give and Take. So yeah. uh, he's an amazing guy, but uh, they're, they both take it, both Betsy and Adam take this to a level of perfection <laughs> that I aspire to. <laughs> Lovely, lovely. So, um, changing a little, uh, a little gears, Heidi. Um, you you talked about uh, the VC industry, and I believe the VC industry runs on relationships and trust. Uh, mm -hmm. It's I would I would say it's a fairly closed door industry. So how how does your sort of fund and and this this ties down to your two decades of experience uh, in in the VC industry? So how do you think? Um, the VC industry has evolved over these two decades because now we see um, huge AUMs coming into VC funds. Um, and we also see a lot of change in the investment theses. Um, early, early in 2000s, it was more so about profits. Now it's more so about the top line and other metrics. Uh, other than that, what are the key changes that you see? Well, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for 21 years. And what I would say mm -hmm. is the trends come and go, but there are a few things that are going to be consistent. Mm -hmm. First of all, companies start at zero, right? Mm -hmm. They start with usually one or two people and an idea. Mm -hmm. And they have to go all the way from that to something very big in the future. Mm -hmm. The second thing is if you're ultimately not satisfying customers and generating revenue, growth, and profit, you will not be successful. Now, when you generate that revenue growth and profit, I get it. There's a lot of continuum there. There are different business models that push it out. There are some mm -hmm. super capital intensive models. There are, you know, software models that, that, you know, the faster you grow, the more money you'll lose in the early and you'll make it up in the end. But at the end of the day, by and large, as a VC, our returns come from companies that generate revenue profit, revenue growth and profit someday. Mm -hmm and satisfy a lot of customers. And that hasn't changed and it's not gonna change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this, the, the stage where we operate, the Series A deal, you're usually talking to firms that have seven to 20 people in them and they've got, maybe they've got some number of customers, maybe they're doing Mm -hmm. a million ARR or something like that, or half a million ARR. They're very early in the yep. process. Yep. And, you know, the truth is the money we give them is just the table stakes, right? There's so mm -hmm. much money in the market right now. I think it's more about who you are and what you can do to be helpful. And I think ethics matter a lot, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. I believe that, I, you know, we were talking to an entrepreneur last night uh, who were, were pitching and trying to get to take our offer. 
And she was joking about, you know, she's been divorced and she said something like, hey, the average VC relationship lasts longer than the average marriage. And I said, I know you're joking about that, but actually that statistic is true. The average VC entrepreneur relationship is seven years and the the median marriage in America is about seven years. And believe me, it's harder to get rid of your VC than it is to get rid of your spouse. So (laughs) you better pay a lot of attention to who you're getting in the deal with and what they're gonna be like when the chips are down and all of that and what kind of help they're gonna provide. So like in this particular company that we're trying to close in the last two weeks, I think I've introduced them to four potential new customers because how can I show them that beyond the money, I'm gonna be in their corner? Well, one of the best ways I can do that is use my connections to build their business. And so I think that that is, you know, every, I think any good entrepreneur is gonna have their choice of people to fund them because right now it is, it's a seller's market, i.e. the entrepreneur having the equity to sell. Uh-huh. And so people on my side of the fence, we have to prove that we're going to be good partners. And, and, and I don't know how else to do that other than actions. To me, at the end of the day, everything is about actions. You can have all the best intentions in the world. Yep. And yep. if you don't actually act the way you intend, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so you, you talk about having a strong value system and a compass to guide uh, entrepreneurs throughout their journey. You've talked about a, a lot about ethics. I've, I've heard your talks. You talk a lot about ethics. So um, what do you think are some, some real values, not just in terms of business, but just in terms of how you deal with people? What are some values that are really attractive for you when you meet founders? Because I believe early stage bets are more about founder, founders than the actual product uh, for, for most of the VCs, right? So what are, what are some sort of value-based traits that you look at? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, one of the things we really like is, is um, companies that are actually doing well and doing good, right? So if you look at the companies that I currently serve on the board of a company like Planet Labs, uh-huh. where we're really hoping to make a huge impact on on climate change. If you're looking at a company like Memphis Meats, where we're really trying to solve one of one yeah. of the world's yeah. worst problems, which is the meat industry, and uh, you know the fact that 40% of the of the world's arable land is used in the production of meat, and that's unsustainable. Yep. So I love companies where not only can you build a huge business and make a lot of money, but you can actually solve world problems, right? Mm-hmm. And so, while not every one of our companies is solving world problems. It certainly is something that is a, an extra win if you can get it, right? Mm-hmm. Is, to, is to invest in a company that's going to do well by doing good. I think that also entrepreneurs, I like entrepreneurs that, you know, they tell the truth. They don't lie about what they're doing. They're not jerks. Mm-hmm. Um, they are respectful of other people. They're respectful of diversity. They show a willingness to have diversity. I mean, one of the interesting things about anyone who's going to pick me is I myself am diverse, right? Mm-hmm. I am a woman and that's still very rare in venture capital. And so yeah, yeah. if you're willing to have a woman as your board member, you're already you know, signing up for a level of diversity that sadly is still missing even this late in the game. And so I think that those are things, you know, I, I think people who, who do what they say they're gonna do and people who don't lie, you know, if I find an entrepreneur has withheld information that could be negative or has lied about a contract and then you call the reference and it turns out that they don't really have the contract that for me is a deal killer because if you're already willing to lie what's going to stop you from lying in the future and i don't want to deal with people who lie absolutely this 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 takes me to so many um 
events that have been happening recently in the valley and uh, we've seen the weevil story unravel we have seen what happened with theranos uh, so do you think there is something wrong going on within the ecosystem with all these um, inflated valuation of companies and uh, zero to no diligence that is happening or do you think these are one off instances and people do focus on the actual value because i believe these are i mean most of these failures are because uh, of the lack of values in the founders Right. Yeah, well, look, I think by and large, the system is working, okay. but you'll hear us a lot of times that the markets uh, kind of flip flop between fear and greed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you get in a greed place, people are willing to overlook some things. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if you look at things like the failure of Theranos, and again, I think by and large, the market's still working in the time that Theranos did its awful thing mm -hmm. and exploded, you had a lot of really healthy, good companies yeah. work. You know, yes. and by the way, not all companies that raise money at high valuations succeed. They're still risky. Yep. And sometimes those risks cause a company to fail, even if nobody did anything ethically wrong. Right. I mean, just sometimes companies are super capital intensive. Sometimes uh -huh. you're making a bet on a technology that doesn't come sufficiently to fruition. Right. Um, so there are good reasons for companies to fail even if you don't want them to fail, but then there are bad reasons like lying and cheating and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. so I think, you know, again, I think by and large the system is working. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, I look at today, for example, every, the, you know, SPACs are all the rage. And, yeah. and really, if you think about it, a SPAC is just an efficient way to go public. Yeah. There are two kinds of SPACs. There are the SPACs that are companies that could have gone public, but they're using a SPAC. And then there are companies that couldn't have gone public, but they're using a SPAC. And it's that latter, latter category, I scratch my head and I'm like, you're a pre-revenue company, you're super capital intensive, yeah. you're, you're going to have really lumpy, you know, uh, earnings in your out years, and now you're a public company. I don't get it. But <laughs> hey, if it works for them, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I, it's not something I participate in, but, right. you know, the, at the end of the day, one of my friends likes to say the market bats last. So at the end of the day, the market is batting right now and it either will or won't work and if you don't think it's a good idea then don't mm -hmm. put your money there yeah absolutely i mean um corrections happen all the time happen, yep. in, happen in a way it happened in 16 and they happen all the time and um, that is when uh, if, if anything's not working it wipes off those those companies those people yeah. and uh, the, the stronger the sustainable and ones. Hey, look, sometimes huge corrections happen and then companies survive. I mean, I was just reading this yeah. morning about WeWork mm -hmm. and, you yeah. know, talk about a correction, <laughs> but it's still kicking. And there yeah. are a lot of we, elements of WeWork strategy that make sense in, mm -hmm. even in the COVID era. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, story's not done there yet. Mm. Yeah. I'm not an investor. I'm just saying I read it <laughs> as an interested party at the yeah. time, yeah. you know, a year ago, the I couldn't justify the valuation. Mm -hmm. But hey, that went away, but they're, they're still kicking. I wouldn't mm -hmm. rule them out. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So, uh, Heidi, I mean, this is, this is customary since the times are tough. So, and I also uh, heard a couple of your uh, talks at the ETL, the, the Stanford series. Uh, you talk about handling crises such as this one. So, for, some, for a startup which has uh, a little runway, which, uh, so what is, what is a good strategy to sort of weather this storm with? less runway? Uh, should startups completely pivot to the to service the demand that had, has arisen due to COVID or should they stick to their product, lie low and get through this period? 
Well, I think, I mean, I, I did do, I did a talk at Stanford ETL on mm -hmm. April 15th of this year that if anybody wants to know my playbook for surviving a downturn, there's an hour of material there. <laughs> I can boil it down to sort of a sentence, yep. uh, which is um, most startups never raise outside capital. Most startups bootstrap and they make their money from customers. Venture capital is a very precise instrument for a very small subset of companies. And so I would argue that for most entrepreneurs, what you have to figure out is how do I make it if I could never raise capital again, and I just have to make it by getting people to pay me for what I do, how do I do that? And that's how 99% of startups actually work. And so to me, there's no great mystery about this. I mean, the one thing about runway is if you run out and you don't have more money, you're dead. Uh, profitable companies never run out of runway. So figuring out how it's so simple, and I know this just sounds so like, duh, of course, Heidi, but it's amazing to me how many people don't think about this. If yeah. every month you can make just a little more than you spend, you will never go out of business. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, that's, a really, that's a really profounding thought. I mean. And so um, simple. <laughs> yeah, and so simple. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's simple. That's right. There's a big difference between easy and simple. Absolutely, absolutely, lovely. So, uh, Heidi, that's I think that's a really good good uh, food for thought for the end of the episode, and um, it was a fun conversation with you. It was lovely to have you over, and it was a lot uh, of fun. Thank you, thank you for the great questions.